The book of Ruth sits like a beautiful pearl inside the dirty, crusty old oyster of Israel's history known for its judges. If you know anything about an oyster, an oyster takes a piece of sand or debris or irritant and around that builds a pearl. Similarly, Ruth faced unusual hardship, sorrow, loss, adversity. And she built a pearl. Even Milton referred to the book of Ruth as the prototype of virtue. It's been called by other authors the greatest short story ever written. But far more than it being just a beautiful story, it's an incredible account of the grace of God in the face of hardship and the sovereignty of God overseeing what are at times moments of adversity that weave a beautiful redemptive tapestry on the other side. Ruth is a beautiful pearl in the Bible. It's short. How many of you don't like really reading all that much? You just as soon read something short. Well, the book of Ruth is for you. It's only four chapters. For every book, we want to get our arms around it as a church, as we're studying through the books of the Bible, this is book number eight in our series. We've looked at the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then we saw the book of Joshua, which led us to the book of Judges, and this morning, the book of Ruth. Next Sunday, we begin our series in the New Testament, leading us up to Easter. And on Easter Sunday, we'll be in the Gospel of John, and we will have looked at the other three Gospels leading our way up to uh, John. So it's, it's a, just an incredible time to feast on the Word of God and to feast on what God has for us. Now, before we come to the Gospels, it is a very appropriate precursor to Matthew to study Ruth. Because Ruth ends exactly the way Matthew begins. Uh, Ruth would make an incredible romance novel. In fact, it would make a great movie. I could picture Merle Streep as, uh, starring as Naomi. And in my mind, I have... Um, oh, what is her name? Oh, rats, it escapes me. Playing Ruth. Um... Oh, who would make a good Ruth? Halle Berry is who I was thinking. I thought Halle Berry would make a great Ruth. Anyway, okay, go with whoever you want. Have your fun. I was having trouble with, um, with Boaz. And then I thought Kiefer Sul- Sullivan would be just great as, as Boaz. Anyway, okay, sorry about that. Where were we? Yes. Um, <clears throat> It would make a great movie because so much today, 
undercuts virtue. Oh, there's little value here and there in movies, and, and I do enjoy a good movie. But this is just made. It's dripping virtue. In fact, if you are reading along with us, and whether or not you've read the book of Ruth yet, I would encourage you to mark V every time you come across virtue. And I'll tell you, you'll have at least 35 V's in the margin. And I'm going to help us this morning recognize the virtue in the book of Ruth. Parents, one of our primary jobs is to teach our children how to exemplify, but how to recognize virtue. And so help them kind of do a study. As you're reading along, stop after each paragraph and say, now where do you see virtue there? Where do you see virtue there? Where do you see virtue there? It is dripping with virtue. Okay, we want to get our overview. We want to get our arms around the book. Here we go. Ruth chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. Chapter 1, three sad funerals. It's one funeral after another. Naomi and her husband, during a famine and hardship, in order to claw out a living, leave Israel and they go to neighboring country Moab in order to financially survive. They have two boys. The father dies, leaving the two boys and the mother. The two boys get married. The first one marries a gal, Orpah. I call her Oprah. And the second one marries Ruth. Then after ten years, both of their husbands die. That's chapter 1. Three sad funerals. They're living in a foreign land. They don't have much. There's no male provider left. And there's no other children to marry and sustain the family. So they are really financially scrapped. It is a sad, sad situation. Three sad funerals. Chapter 2 is two needy widows. Now, the reason we're down to two is because Oprah went off, of course, to start a talk TV show. We, we know that. Oh, no, no, no. no. Anyway, anyway, it, it, it'll help you remember. <laughs> Sorry about that, William. That was bad. Okay, so um, anyway, uh, Oprah left. And despite um, Naomi trying to encourage Ruth to leave her, Ruth insists on staying. It's incredible. There's a V. Virtue. A lesser woman would have gone off to start a television show, but Ruth stays and cares for her mother-in-law. Four times Naomi tried to encourage Ruth to leave, but she stays. And then those incredible words that are used at many weddings, and appropriately so. Words of covenant. Chapter 1, verse 16 and following. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And then listen to these words. And your God will be my God. Now, somewhere along the road, that's the first time we see that Ruth, born of idolatrous parents, people who worshipped other gods, somewhere she came to faith. 
Maybe it was evangelistic dating. Maybe before, before she got married, uh, she came to faith. Or afterwards, or during their ten years of marriage, we don't know. But somewhere, Ruth comes to faith. And now, when her father-in-law is dead, her husband's dead, and her sister-in-law has left, The two of them are there, and she makes this incredible statement of faith. It's loyalty on the horizontal with her and her mother-in-law, but it's loyalty on the vertical with, with her and her God. Your God, Naomi, the God of the Jews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will be my God. Wow. Praise God. Uh, An expression of profound faith. The last verse in chapter 1 ends with the barley harvest. For that reason, Ruth is read at every Jewish Pentecost. Pentecost is the celebration of the feast, of the the harvest. It's the feast of harvest. And... Jews read this because really the drama of the story, which unpacks right from the end of chapter 1 right through chapter 4, is all takes place during this one barley harvest. So chapter 1, three sad funerals. Chapter 2, two needy widows. Chapter 3 is one... Beautiful romance. I was going to call it a hot romance. I thought that's not good. No, we, won't, we won't call this a hot romance. But it was a beautiful romance. It, virtue, these are all over the margins of your Bible if you're marking virtue every time you see it. It's all over the chapter 3 in the way this romance unfolds. And then chapter 4 is one kinsman redeemer. Let me explain that word. It's used eight times in the book of Ruth. Kinsman redeemer. Kinsman means family member. A family member. Who is a redeemer. A redeemer is one who not only has the ability to help, but who exercises that ability to help a needy person who is unable to help themselves. That's a redeemer. So a kinsman redeemer is one with the ability to help a person who is utterly helpless and who exercises that privilege, who is a family member. Now, let's just talk about the the family member who exercises his ability to help an otherwise helpless person. His name is Boaz, the Kiefer Sutherland of our story. Okay, Boaz. Boaz, one of the few things we know about Boaz, in addition to the fact that he was loaded, chapter 2, verse 1, says that he had great wealth. But what we learn at the end of the story, and it's repeated in Matthew chapter 1, is that Boaz's mother was a prostitute. Her name was Rahab. 
She was the one in Joshua chapter 2 who came to faith. Here she lived inside Jericho, this idolatrous city that worshipped other gods. And she was herself not only an idolater, but she was a loose woman. She sold her body to make a profit. Anything but virtuous. But she came to faith. She saw what happened to the Jordan River that it, at flood stage it stopped flowing and Israel walked across. And she somehow came to faith in the one true God who stopped the Jordan River and knew that God, that one God, was going to give these people success. If He would stop a river, He was going to give them the land into which they were marching. And she said, I'm going to repent of my idols, and I'm going to put my faith in your God. But I'll help you, but I want you to save me. When you come in and God gives you this city, I want you to save me. So what did she do? She hung a red scarf outside her window. So that when the walls fell, they would go in and save her and all her family members. You can imagine how many children she must have had. One of whom was Boaz. Boaz becomes a beautiful example of someone who was now you could call him first generation or second generation follower of the one true God. But follow this. He came from an utterly dysfunctional background and family situation who shows nothing but virtue and godliness by his lifestyle. Some of us spend our whole lives bemoaning our background and we never take responsibility and move on. Boaz is the patron saint of everyone raised in a dysfunctional family who comes to faith and can break the cycle. I mean, there could be another book next to the book of Ruth called the book of Boaz. What a story. Virtue, 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 virtue all over. And we've listed about eight of them in your notes. Eight points of virtue for Boaz and eight points of virtue for Ruth. They're in your notes. And I wish I was this morning, I wish I was a movie producer who could use the greatest genius of cinematography today to produce the story of Ruth so that you might see it. But I, I don't have that skill. But could we take what's written here and unpack it for us as not only a beautiful story that would make a great romance story today, but as a movie that we can identify ourselves with different points in the film. Inside your notes, I want to unpack this word maturity. Just as Ruth stooped, 
to gleaning leftover grain from the field owned by Boaz. Let's go through the book of Ruth like we're gleaning from the nuggets, from the grain that's here in this book. And let's gather some gleanings on her maturity and why God chose her. Gleaning number one, maturity embraces reality. Now, here you can click your pens and and interact with the notes if you want to preserve this for future reference. Number one inside your notes there, maturity embraces reality. When Ruth broke step with her sister-in-law, Orpah, who left Naomi, She was not denying reality. She knew it was going to be tough. She knew it was going to be difficult. In fact, things went from bad to worse. No sooner had she signed up to stick with Naomi that Naomi changes her name to Mara. Mara means bitter. Naomi, who must have had a certain degree of virtue, also became bitter. She became so bitter over her circumstance that she changed her name to bitter. How would you like to be the daughter-in-law of a woman who's now calling herself bitter? I'm just bitter. That's the situation she's now in. She didn't deny reality. No, number two, maturity assumes responsibility. She appeals to her mother-in-law in in chapter 2, verse 2, and says, let me go to the fields and I'll pick up the leftovers left behind in someone in whose eyes I'll be given favor. Now, to take that step, to submit to gleaning, it's like being a bag lady. If you were in a city, you would stand on the street corner and rattle your cup and wait for someone to give you a handout. If you're in an agrarian society, you would glean. You would go and stoop down and beg for leftovers. If you remember back in our study, a few books back to the book of Leviticus, and it's a little bit in the book of Exodus, God set up laws to protect the poor so that there wouldn't be a huge discrepancy between the haves and the have-nots. And he told the haves, the landowners, not to harvest all the way to the edges of the crops, but to leave that for the poor, so that those that didn't have much would never go begging, that they would have rightful uh, food. And that's what Ruth is now counting on, being a recipient of, kind of the, the, the Hebrew welfare system. But it was her idea. Let me go glean. Her mother-in-law didn't tell her, you better get out and start doing this. She took the initiative to go and take responsibility for her situation. Then we see maturity submits to authority. Ruth says, in this case, chapter 3 now, this time Naomi gives her a piece of advice. And she says in response, I'll do whatever you say. 
the relational health of both Ruth and Boaz is extraordinary. When we think of the relational issues that Ruth normally could have faced or that Boaz normally could have faced with his background, it makes it that much more extraordinary. But she submits herself to her God-given authority, even though the authority had nothing to provide in terms of means. It was still God's constituted authority over her mother-in-law at this time to protect her and to look out for her. And she hooked her little red wagon to her mother-in-law's star and lived under that. She was the authority. The next thing we see is maturity honors accountability. Now, the the story of chapter 3 and this beautiful romance that develops here. Let me explain this. There's nothing indiscreet or um, lacking propriety in what Ruth did in putting herself near Boaz. In many ways, Ruth and Boaz were compatible. Boaz was a wealthy farmer. Ruth was a needy widow. Boaz was generous. Ruth was grateful. They both had integrity. They were both morally responsible and pure. Here's what Ruth did. She worked hard all day, as she did every day. And her mother-in-law said, now when you're done working, go and take a good shower. Put on your finest. Put on perfume. And after the partying for the good harvest is over, spend the night out in the public place near the threshing floor where the harvest is celebrated in proximity to Boaz. Now, there'll be many others out there. You're not doing anything indiscreet. But at night, when he wakes up, Submit yourself in principle to Boaz. And if he extends himself to you in any way, tell him that you are open to his overture. So she does it. It's just like her mother-in-law said. He wakes up in the middle of the night. He says, that doesn't smell like cow manure. It's me, Ruth. Oh, Ruth. And then she says something that I'll explain the cultural background. She says, I'm your servant. And if you wish, you can extend your shawl or your covering over me. Now let me explain that. In a Jewish wedding... Instead of just giving rings, the groom takes off his coat or covering, his, his wrap, and places it over the shoulders of the bride as a picture of covering 
I will provide for you. I will cover you. I will care for you. My care, my broader shoulders will embrace you. No matter what needs you have, they'll be my needs. And I will care for you. It's a beautiful picture. Now, since he would qualify not as the most immediate kinsman redeemer, but as one in a line of kinsman redeemers, she placed himself at night out in this open area where a bunch of the guys were camping down. He wakes up and she says, Now, if you would, you could extend your covering over me. That did not mean you can marry me if you want. That just means you can assume whatever degree of responsibility for my needs that you're open to. And being the intelligent, godly leader, he knew immediately that he wasn't going to cross any lines of indiscretion. But that when the sun came up the next day, he was going to get right on top of making this official. And that he would extend his covering over her if the circumstances permitted. So he goes to the public place. We're up to chapter 4. The next day he goes out into, into the public. And he calls the city elders. And he calls the closest kin Naomi and Ruth had. The number one kinsman redeemer. And says, do you want to stake a claim? And he says, yes, at first. Then he says, now this means that you'll have to take care of Ruth and assume responsibility for her estate. And the guy then declines. And he says, nope, you can have it. And since there, he had ten witnesses, the city elders were all there. He uh, basically uh, confirmed by oath, you guys witnessed this? Yes, we witnessed it. And it was official. He had now received the proper protocol, righteous assignment for her if he so chose. And he did. She submitted to her level of authority. She honored accountability. The next thing we see, maturity protects purity. She maintained her purity. He maintained his purity. In fact, it was her purity that attracted him to her. And he said, you have not run after the younger men. And I like that. In fact, he said, all my fellow townsmen Know that you are a woman of noble character. You're not flirtatious. You're not loose. You're upright, pure. And I, I admire that about you. The next thing we see, maturity demonstrates its integrity. There's integrity not only with Ruth, but also with Boaz, the way he went to great lengths to make sure that it was publicly honored and recognized before he had any relations with Ruth. And then toward the end of chapter 4, we see maturity will always leave a legacy. Not only was it God's best for Boaz, 
And he ends up with a gorgeous young wife. It was redemptive for Ruth. She received everything and then some that she could have imagined. But not only for Ruth, but also for Naomi. And never again will we find her referred to as Mara. God withdrew her bitterness and blessed her. And she heard the laughter of children and the cries of a midnight feeding and the little pitter-patter of feet through the house. God restored to her. And this book ends, verse 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, right where the Gospel of Matthew begins. More than this being simply a romance, and you must admit, that's a good romance, but more than it being a romance, the book of Ruth is a sacred romance. While the book of Ruth contains no dramatic miracles, there's no angelic appearances, there's no extraordinary visions and dreams. You see the fingerprints of God all over the book of Ruth in the character, in the virtue of the stars of the book. And isn't that what it's all about after all? God's character. His virtue being pressed into our lives. And it's a story of how God takes irritations, takes adversities, takes hardship and sorrows, and like the oyster, creates a pearl, a thing of beauty. And some of you may right now feel like you're oysters. Like you're in the bottom of the ocean. You're crusty looking, dirty. How many of you like eating oysters? How many of you would never eat an oyster? See, it's about half and half. Well, there's nothing wrong with liking oysters and there's nothing wrong with not liking, but they are dirty and sludgy and slimy <laughs> and delicious, right? But isn't it remarkable? No beauty queen would wear a string of oysters, but most are glad to wear a string of pearls. And our God knows how, by His grace, to take the impediments, the grit, the irritants of life and create pearls of beauty. That's our God. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father, father of Perez and Zerah. And his, his mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. 
Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's stand together.